Thank you, each one of you, for being here tonight. Thank you for your singing. Jim, thank you for your ministry and music. That uh, song was mostly scripture that you sang tonight, and that was a joy to hear, and certainly very appropriate for what we are going to be considering from the book of Revelation this evening. We are going to be continuing on with our uh, study of the churches, and tonight we look at the church at Smyrna, and it begins as each of the churches begin with the description of Christ, although each description is slightly different to each church. In Revelation 2.8 it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. We have been emphasizing the fact that the description of Christ that is given to the churches comes from the vision of Christ that is given in chapter 1. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Further, we have been stressing that the particular reference to the description of Christ that is given to the churches is directly applicable to their condition. So there's something about Christ that is revealed that is intended to minister to the, to the church. There's a direct correlation between our understanding of who Christ is and the benefits that are accrued to us as a result. So see, in this instance, the resurrection of Jesus and his being alive is to be a source of comfort to the church at Smyrna that may have to suffer death in their faithfulness to Christ. For the end of verse 10, it says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, is the resurrected one. Well, that's our confidence in, in our resurrection. It's based in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So as he writes to the church at Smyrna, Christ is well aware of and cares about the suffering that the Smyrna Christians are going through. Christ is well aware and cares about their suffering. It tells us that Christ knows about their trouble. In verse 9, I know your tribulation. This is not the tribulation of the last days, which is yet future. It's not talking about the great tribulation, but rather tribulation or hardship or difficulty or trouble in general. Nevertheless, it is trouble that comes with identifying with Christ throughout the ages. So that is not unique or particular to the church at Smyrna. There are many Christians down through the ages who had to suffer trials, difficulties, hardships, for naming the name of Christ. But not only does he know our troubles, but Christ knows our hardships. It says in verse 9, I know your poverty. Smyrna was a city 35 miles north of Ephesus, and like Ephesus, Smyrna was a seaport and a prosperous city overall. The poverty is most likely due to the persecution that they are suffering. It's a part of the trouble that they are experiencing and identifying with Christ. 
The book of Hebrews gives us some insight into the financial hardship that accompanied persecution. For you had a co compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So this aspect of the plundering of their property, the seizing of their assets, was a part of the persecution that they were undergoing. But not only is Christ aware of their hardships, Christ is also aware of their blessedness. For though they were poor materially, they were rich spiritually. I know your tribulation and your poverty, and then it says, but you are rich. The scriptures often speak of the spiritual riches for those who suffer material loss. Hebrews 10, 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Matthew 19, 21. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Of course, we have the teaching of Jesus. Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. But what we want to emphasize is that Christ is not only aware of our sufferings, he also is well aware of our blessedness. For it says, but you are rich. This is a statement of fact. It's a, a statement of encouragement. This is not simply how they're to view their, their circumstance, but it's the way in which Christ views their circumstances. For he knows their trouble and he knows their riches. So hey, we may wonder why Christ would allow us to experience the things that we do. It's very helpful to gain Christ's perspective on our suffering. Christ, though not insensitive to our sufferings, sees us as richly blessed. He is more than compensating us in our sufferings. He is very much caring and providing for us as we go through these trials on his behalf. I think it's important as we are experiencing trials and difficulties not to lose sight of God's perspective and his love and compassion for us. He says you're rich. I was really moved this week in uh, visiting uh, Jen Rivera. I, I gotta admit, I was kinda shaken all day. Uh, I went to see her and uh, I was moved, uh, just seeing her condition, uh, very alert, certainly aware of her circumstances, all that's going on, and the extreme limitations that she was experiencing. And I kept it together while I was talking to her, but I went out to the car and just wept. And I sat in the car and I prayed for her. And as I prayed, I thought about God. I did not question his compassion or his mercy. 
but rather sought to ascribe honor and glory to him. For whatever compassion I felt, I knew that it was only a minute way in which God felt compassion for her. I knew that I was not nearly moved as God was moved. I knew that I was there for a brief period of time. But God would never leave her nor forsake her. And while it's hard to imagine, and I cannot explain, this loving and compassionate and caring God has a reason, has a purpose, and there's going to be a blessedness for her in eternity that is indescribable. But how we look at our suffering and how we look at God is vital to see us through that suffering. We find out, see, Christ is well aware of their persecutors. Their persecution stemmed from those who had a Jewish background. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not. These people bring blasphemy against God. That's what it meant by slander, blasphemy. In Romans, we saw just last week, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. These were people who were Jews in name only. They say they are Jews, they're not. Romans 3.23, excuse me, 2.28 and following said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So when it says that they were not Jews, they certainly were people that were descendants of Abraham. While it says they were not Jews, they were certainly people that were most likely circumcised. When it's saying they were not Jews, it was saying that they did not share in the faith of Abraham. These were not individuals that were regenerate. They had uh, an ethnic affiliation, but they didn't have a true and genuine faith. They are inadvertently serving the purposes of the evil one. For it goes on to say in verse 9, the underlying statement, but are a synagogue of Satan. We are not to think that there was a satanic call to worship at the time. Okay, when it says that they were a synagogue of Satan, I don't think we're, we're to, to view that they actually erected uh, some kind of edifice in which they were all gathered together and uh, worshiping Satan and involved in all kinds of cultic practices. But rather, unwittingly, these individuals are not serving God, but Satan. As in John 8, 39, when Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders. He said, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of, that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot 
bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So uh, he says, you are of your father, the devil. That's not how they viewed themselves. Uh, that's not how they were uh, casting their religious uh, practice. But nonetheless, inadvertently, they were actually doing the work of the evil one. And it's in that sense he's saying to this church uh, that I know those, they say they're Jews, they're not. Uh, they have no relationship to me. They are actually doing the work of the evil one. Three, Christ encourages them not to be afraid with regard to what they are going to suffer on account of his name. Christ encourages them by letting them know things that are going to get worse rather than better. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, that is the main point of this particular statement to the church. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Uh, as you look at the future, and as you look at what you are going to go through, don't be afraid. Number one, there have always been false teachers that proclaim individuals are not going to suffer the way that God says they will suffer. Ezekiel 13, 8 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions, who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Okay, so, so they paint over. It's a, it's a wonderful picture here. We talk about whitewashing the truth. These are people that when God says there's going to be trouble, say, no, there's going to be peace. There's going to be peace. Everything's going to be fine. Hey, people would much rather hear that they're not going to suffer as opposed to hearing that they will suffer. Uh, so there is a great temptation to alter the word of God so that it promises us no suffering as opposed to revealing to us the very fact that we are going to suffer. But there is no comfort in false hope. It just proves to be a lie. It just proves to be a delusion. It proves to be illusionary. When the suffering finally appears, the truth is known. So God is providing people with an opportunity to prepare for their suffering. And I think that's the great lesson that we are to learn from this lesson to the church, and that is we need to ready ourselves for suffering. Whether that be persecution, whether that be disease, whether that be difficulty, whether that be hardship, uh, if you're not suffering a great deal right now, don't take that for granted. Rejoice and be thankful. For the great likelihood is that at some point in your life, you're going to know 
a great deal of suffering. The time to prepare is now. The time to think about the realities of suffering is now. To get your theology, if you will, of suffering down. So you don't question in the midst of it what is happening or what has gone wrong. Nothing has gone wrong. You are experiencing what God tells you you're going to experience. In this world, we are going to know suffering. Two, in my estimation, there is a lot of false hope that is being given concerning the escape of suffering and tribulation. This includes the false hope of the health and wealth gospel. There is a health and wealth gospel out there that promises complete prosperity, good health, Joyful life for all those that just exercise enough faith. And so often those people, when suffering comes, are just devastated. They are just so disillusioned. And many times even question their own salvation because they look at themselves and say, I really, really had faith, I really believed, and yet look what's experiencing, look what's happening to me. I remember a situation with my own father-in-law that uh, <clears throat> had started attending a health and wealth church, <clears throat> and my father-in-law came down with cancer. He was a man that was about six foot three, probably weighed about 200 pounds, and it was about three weeks before he died, and he was probably 90 pounds, laying in a hospital bed, skin and bones, and the pastor walked in and said to him, Tom, if you have enough faith, you'll get up out of this bed and walk out of this hospital, and left. He just looked at me, devastated. Devastated. I said, that's not God's promise, Tom. And that's not the measure of your faith. And we talked about eternal life. There is false hope. And false hope is devastating. It also includes the false hope of the American church that has not experienced times of real persecution. Um, I say this with no glee, believe me. Um, but I, I really do honestly believe that the teaching of the pre-tribulational rapture is dangerous in the sense that it gives people this expectation that we're not going to ever have to go through trouble or difficulty. Boy, I hope I'm wrong. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that there is a pre-tribulational rapture. But I think what motivates so much of it is people don't want to experience suffering. And so it just becomes this wonderful thing that, that we have this promise that... We're going to be taken out of here before we experience all these things. Well, these exhortations are for somebody. <laughs> Somebody's going to be going through this, and they're Christians. And uh, I just say to you, uh, be on the alert that from all sides we are being told, if you're part of God's people, you won't suffer. That just doesn't match church history. That just doesn't match what's going on around this world. Uh, we have had a unique 
period of time in this country for 200 years. But remember, what founded this country were people that were fleeing religious persecution. We need to prepare ourselves. Maybe not for persecution, but we certainly need to prepare ourselves for suffering. Three, such a false hope does not ready people for what they are about to face. Um, so, so we need to go in there with our eyes wide open. B, Christ encourages his people by letting them know the source of their suffering. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So it's the evil one who's at work. Uh, they are not to see their suffering as God's judgment upon them. They are not to see themselves out of fellowship with God. They are not to see themselves as somehow being disciplined by God. He's saying this suffering is from the evil one. Don't take it as a testimony or a demonstration that I have forsaken you or I've abandoned you or I'm fed up with you or I am judging you. This is from the evil one. See, Christ encourages people by letting them know the purpose of their suffering. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And then it says this, that you may be tested. That you may be tested. Suffering in general is a testing and thus a marvelous opportunity for our witness to be authenticated. Uh, perhaps the, the greatest example of suffering as a test is the person of Job. And you know the story of Job, I hope. And uh, Job is this righteous individual. And Satan appears before God. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one that is righteous like Job. And the evil one says, the only reason he serves you is because of what you have done for him. But you take away all this blessedness and he will curse you to your face. And God says to uh, Satan, well, all right, you can remove his property, you can do these things to him, but you can't touch his body. And then, after all these things, and Job remains faithful, you remember that Satan appears before God again and says the only reason that Job serves you is because uh, you're so good to him, and he says, all right, you may touch his body, you just can't kill him. All to demonstrate the reality of Job's faith. Suffering is an opportunity for us as Christians to demonstrate the reality and the uniqueness of our faith. There is no testimony like that of a martyr. There is no example that is so moving as a Christian lying in pain. There is nothing that can silence the opposition, the questions, the reality of God or our faith, the way in which we can shine forth in glory in the midst of trial and hardship. When everyone else caves and we stand strong. Christ encourages people by telling them the brevity of their suffering. 
For it says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. The thought there is that it's rather short. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So even when suffering might be the majority of our life, it is slight and light in comparison with an eternity that is never ending, that is real and that is filled with blessedness. E, Christ encourages his people by letting them know the full extent of what they are about to suffer. He doesn't hold anything back. He says, uh, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to, number one, throw some of you into prison. Two, you will have tribulation. Three, be faithful unto death. So some are going to be imprisoned, some are going to suffer, and some are going to die. Number one, a good doctor lets you know what you can expect in your illness. A good doctor tells you the truth. A good doctor prepares you for what you're going to face. I spent time this week with Steve Hartman. And we sat and we talked about his illness. And we talked about his treatment. And he's having two different kinds of chemotherapy. He's having uh, chemotherapy by pills, and he's going to have uh, intravenous uh, chemotherapy. And uh, his doctor told him that this intravenous chemotherapy is going to be much, 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 much more powerful than the chemotherapy he had before. He's already been through a series of chemotherapy treatments. He said it's going to be a lot stronger, and he told him that the side effects are going to be a lot worse. And he told them what he can expect by being on this chemotherapy. He was preparing him. He was readying him. He was telling him what he was about to go through so he would know that this is what it entails. This is not something unusual. This is not something strange. But this is what he is going to expect to happen looking for the outcome, looking for the, the hope that it's the end of all this, and that is that it will be better, that, that uh, it will be ultimately alleviated. So they are told the, the full breadth of, of their suffering. I had an experience with my own mother. Uh, my mother died of cancer, and uh, she was diagnosed and uh, they did an exploratory surgery on my mother. And uh, my mother and I had a long talk. We were very close. We were very candid with each other. And um, she had the surgery. And uh, it revealed that she was just filled with cancer. And uh, would have a very short time to live. And the doctor said to me, um, your mother's filled with cancer. And he said, it's probably better she doesn't know this right now. Uh, give her a couple weeks to heal and get stronger, and, and then uh, we'll figure out a way to break it to her. My mother was still in recovery. 
came out of recovery, opened her eyes, and the first thing she said to me is, did it spread? I said, Mom, you're filled with cancer. She looked at me and said, I thought so. She knew how she felt. She knew how sick she was. And as hard as it was to say that, it wasn't devastating to her. She died on Christmas Day. Praising and giving thanks to God. F. Christ encourages the people by giving them hope in the midst of their suffering. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We tend to give praise to individuals in, in their funerals. God will give praise to individuals in the life to come. His greatest blessing is eternal life. Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death refers to the final judgment that will come upon the unbeliever, which results in their permanent separation from God. Revelation 20.13 and following. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That second death is the eternal separation from God. God says, those that conquer will not experience that second death. They're not going to experience this separation from God. For the believer, there's no fear of eternal judgment or suffering in the future. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. But this can be misleading, for it might appear that this conquering is somehow being uh, awarded the second death, that it is the way in which you suffer that is going to result in eternal life. But rather, what it is saying is that, that this is the conquering, this is the overcoming. This is the great and final blessing of God. It's eternal life. It is the riches of, what he, of which he speaks. This is victory, entering the presence of God. This is triumph. This is victory over the evil one. This is conquering your enemies. This is what victory looked like. It's not by overpowering them. It's not by subduing them. But it's by not fearing those who can take the physical life, but rather fearing the one that can cast the person in the soul. Conquering is learning to fear God more than fearing man. Whatever mankind may throw at us. I think this is extremely relevant to us today as we hear so many different voices. The greatest responsibility for us is our testimony before God 
that we demonstrate ourselves as different from this world because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't fear death. You know, as he prepares the church at Smyrna for what they are suffering, he doesn't call them to arms. He doesn't say, you better get a militia together because the enemy's coming. He doesn't tell them to arm themselves so they can go to battle. You know, I was a little concerned this morning as as pastor was working through the Nehemiah in the light of exactly what's happening in our culture today and our president telling us that we need to arm the people in the church so that these things don't happen. Well, uh, we, we were talking and we're on the same page, so we're, we're not, uh, we're not, uh, I'm not finding fault with what he said, nor, nor did he say what I'm about to say. Uh, so, as I said, we're on the same page. It's important to realize, as you study the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, that Nehemiah is not a priest. He's a governor. It's the reason why when they tell him to go in the temple, he says, I can't. He's, he's a, he's a He's not a priest. He isn't allowed to go into the temple and do the things that they're telling him to do. He's a governor. He's not building the temple. He's building the walls. The walls were for protection. Okay? And as the governor, he was responsible for for protecting his people. But if you read the book of Ezra, and Ezra is a priest, it's interesting. Which did they build first? The temple or the walls? Anybody know? Temple. The temple was built first, and then the walls. And when they were bringing all this gold in, you know, to to build the temple, and uh, all these monies that they were carrying, what stands out in the book of Ezra is Ezra says that he did not ask for a guard. He did not ask for an army to protect them. So there's there's places in which we need to exercise governmental authority and raise up armies and protection. And then there are areas where in our own Christian life, we have a responsibility of not bearing arms and of submitting ourselves to the to will of God and uh, allowing God to be honored and glorified through our life or our death. We have to have the right balance. There's nothing wrong if the church is under attack to call 911 and ask the police to come and intervene. But that's quite different from the church turning around and opening up on its adversaries. Food for thought. How are we going to respond to suffering? But what I'm concerned is at a more basic level, and that is that in our society, there is nothing more important to protect in our lives. By society's standards, if we don't protect our lives and the lives of our loved ones, then we are just the worst people on the face of the earth. There is nothing more valuable than your life. I submit there's nothing more valuable than our testimony. There's nothing more valuable than honoring the Lord and submitting to his authority. And it really stands out in our culture.
It is so countercultural to submit ourselves to suffering. Let me just say, not just when it comes to issues of safety and arming people in the church and so on, but, but you think about just life in general. When it gets close to the end of life, you will hear it. I hear it every single day. It's an exaggeration, but it's close to it. Where someone will say, I just hope they don't suffer. Whatever you can do that they don't suffer. That the, the greatest concern is people suffering. I'm not talking about being indifferent. I'm not talking about being hard. I'm not talking about the, being without compassion. I'm not talking about being cruel. But I am saying that there is something glorious when a person bears up under suffering. And acknowledges a holy God that is worthy of my obedience and my honor and my praise no matter what comes into my life. We need to prepare ourselves to be ready for whatever might come into our life that we are still praising, honoring, glorifying, and worshiping our God. And if we do that, we're conquerors. And we will have overcome the evil one. And we will have overcome our opponents. For they will not have been able to get the best of us. And they will not have dishonored our God. Nor will we. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us, our God, to be faithful in all of life's trials and hardships and, and difficulties. Oh Lord, guard us from prizing our earthly lives above all things. For we all know that one day we're going to die. We all know that. Oh Lord, prepare us for our end. And may we not so guard our lives that we ruin our end. But may we submit to the authority of, of the Lord Jesus. May we remember our days are numbered. They are in your hands. We cannot add to our days, your word tells us. Lord, don't let the world fool us. Don't let all the false religious hope dissuade us. 
And I pray for all those in our congregation who are suffering now. Maybe not persecution, but suffering in other ways. Lord, hold them up. Give them courage. Give them confidence. Oh, Lord, guard their hearts that they don't question your, your love and your goodness and your compassion. Oh, Lord, help us to see our riches. Help us to see eternal life. Help us to see that there is so more, much more than that which is around us. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. And give us joy to be able to name the name of Christ. And give us even the attitude of Peter, who rejoiced for counted worthy of being able to suffer. He viewed it as an honor and as a privilege. Oh Lord, help us to wear our suffering as a badge. To the honor and glory of Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.